welcome to my coaching podcast, Dancing in the Moment, where I chat to people from the world of coaching and psychology about their story, their approach, and their insights about the coaching profession. They're all people I like, respect and admire for the way they show up in the world. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to my Dancing in the Moment podcast. And uh, this week I'm speaking to Lorna Davis, who is a wonderful woman who I came to know when she trained as coach with me. I had the privilege of spending uh, one to one time with her to do the coach training. Uh, Lorna has had a glittering global career as a senior leader. And we're here just to talk about lessons learned from that career, particularly with regard to leadership today and the role that coaching can play in supporting leaders to be the collaborative, vulnerable leaders that we're aspiring to now. So welcome, Lorna, huge warm welcome to you. I know you're in Manhattan. I know it's noisy outside. <laughs> we'll shout if we need to. And on cue, there was a police siren then. Of course. <laughs> so would you mind starting by telling us a bit about your career? Because I remember when you told me I was enthralled at the career progression you'd made. Sure. Uh, so first of all, it's lovely to see you again, Kim. Um, I... Um, I fondly remember our time and I learned so much from you. Um, so it's a privilege to be talking with you today. Um, yes, I have, um, I think it's fair to say a very international career. Um, I, I lived in, in seven countries on five continents and had a classic uh, corporate career where I basically followed where my bosses told me to go. Um, and I um, became a president of company for the first time when I was 37 and basically have, was a president for 20 years in various countries, including China, the UK, France, and the US. Um, so um, big businesses was my, was my game. And I think it's fair to say that um, I climbed the ladder that was in front of me and then got to the top of that ladder and went, whoops, <laughs> whoops, it's not what I was thinking it was going to be. And so, uh, so of course, I segued into a, a more sort of, I think, uh, for me now, um, comforting, satisfying, stimulating life as a as a coach and as a speaker and as a kind of guide for people who want to live differently. So I'm interested when you said you got to the top of that ladder and you went, whoops, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Just let's go back for a moment to like the beginning. Did you plan to be a president of a big company? No. No, no. I, I, I'm South African originally. In fact, I went to university to study psychology and anthropology. 
um, and on a whim, uh, Unilever happened to be recruiting at Careers Week and they offered me a job and so I landed up in marketing. And, um, and I was, a, I was a, in retrospect, I was a really talented, hardworking, uh, enthusiastic young person. Um, and so I just kept getting promoted. And so I kept thinking, this is cool. And I was loving what I was doing and I was learning um, and I was getting paid more. I was getting more powerful and I was experimenting more and I was having more adventures. Um, but I really, at some point I did, I, I, and I, you, you mentioned, I have a Ted talk and I talk in my Ted talk about the fact that I realized that, um, that I had, um, come to believe that if I got powerful enough and rich enough, that I would be safe. And I kept on kind of getting, I remember having, I remember having a financial goal and I remember thinking when I have that number, I'll be good. I'll be safe. Mm -hmm. And I, that's the exact word. And I got that number. And I remember looking at the number in my bank account and thinking, uh Oh, I'm not safe. And then I thought, I know, must be the wrong number. Let's just double the number. And so I doubled the number and I got that number. And then by then all of the evidence that this kind of life of kind of following the fun and the excitement and all that, but also assuming that there was a there there, mm -hmm. um, I got enough evidence that said, hold on a second, this whole game isn't working, right? I mean, I can't get any more money. I can't get any more powerful. I can't travel to another country. I've been married twice. I can't marry another guy and hope that that'll work, you know? So it, there was always something. And then, so then for me to realize, ah, ah, it's here. It was always here. I was just looking at the wrong place, you know? That's yeah. kind of how it was for me. Did you do that thinking on your own or did you have coaches, therapists, um, other personal development gurus? Who you um, I, I had, certainly I had therapy early on um, and uh, pretty quickly realized that therapy was just rehashing the same old stories for me. Um, you know, I, I, I think I entertained many a therapist in my youth with my extremely elaborate history. Um, but I got, um, I have had a coach pretty consistently through that time. I, I think I've, it'd be very, very little time in my career that I haven't had a coach. Um, because um, when you're running big businesses, um, you, you know, everybody tells you it's lonely and it is. Um, and in my early years, uh, I had a lot of difficulty with sort of cultural misunderstandings. You know, I was South Africans. We're pretty well known as being a bit on the abrupt side, shall we say. Um, and then I was living in Australia where they thought that I was, you know, harsh and, and, and unkind. Uh, and then I went to England where they thought that I was dull and humorless. Um, because of course, culturally, these things are, are very important. And so I, I got a lot of help from coaches to 
get me um, a better perspective on who I am to other people. And I think, you know, while in my, in now, of course, I look back, I say, gee, I could have been a lot more collaborative a lot earlier. But um, the fact is that if, you know, if you speak to the people who worked in my team, even 20 years ago, they will tell you that I was, uh, I was trying to be inclusive, that I listened well, that I loved them. You know, I think, yeah. I think uh, I've always been a loving leader in my way. Um, and, I, and there's no doubt that coaching through that time helped me. I've sought out different kinds of coaches over the years. Yeah. Um, in the early years, I was much more interested in um, sort of taskmaster-like coaches, people who would hold me to account for my goals. As the years went on, I realized, gee, I didn't need that because, you, you know, nobody need, I didn't need help in, in achieving my specific goals. I was one of the most disciplined people I knew. I needed coaching to settle me down. And right now the coaching that I have um, helps me to see that my wisdom is there quietly underneath all the time. Um, and then everything else becomes possible. Thank you. So now you are coaching. I mean, I guess you were coaching all along when you were a leader, but now you are coaching and speaking. Um, tell me about that transition into this is your kind of work now, your way of being. What, what happened when you, you know, you, you jumped off the top of the ladder and you said, I want to do something else. How did you um, begin to think about being a coach, a speaker? Well, I started, it wasn't dramatic. I started to kind of crawl along as babies do when they start trying to experiment with new things. And uh, I started to understand something very important, which was that my ability to listen was directly related to my willingness to be impacted by what I hear. Um, and that sounds small, but it's extremely profound to me because I spend a lot of time with people who are trying to lead big businesses well, who I'm, I spend a lot of time in the businesses of forceful good space and I have people telling me how difficult it is to you know, run for the short term and the long term. And if I actually look closely, it comes down to our willingness to be impacted by other people's thinking. And as a young leader, I was trained to kind of steamroll other people's thinking. And that sort of suited me because that was sort of consistent in a way with my personality, but it also seemed like the right way. And of course, when you're a leader of a business or in any kind of leadership position, there are times you have to do things that other people don't like. Uh, there's a very big difference between doing things that other people don't like with love, connection, groundedness, openness, and just kind of locking your ears. Yeah. And this dance of vulnerable listening, let me call it, mm -hmm. um, is a very powerful dance for me. And, 
and and you, you know it's interesting that your podcast has got the word dance in it because it is a dance it's not it's not a science um and it's subtle because our ability to protect and take care of ourselves at the same time as listening to what other people say yes. is 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 subtle yeah that's so beautifully put and who who leads the dance the person being coached you know i saw the other day that um somebody you know one of the memes on social media said um the the teacher is awake the student is asleep the teacher helps to wake the student and then we take turns okay and i kind of like that because i think i mean what i what i think is powerful in coaching now both as a coach and as a coachee is there's this space at the beginning of the conversation a space at the beginning of the agreement and a space at the beginning of every conversation and somehow in that space arises what needs to happen in this time i mean even this podcast yeah there is a space in this you didn't send me a bunch of letter, let, you know questions before you were here you and me we're looking yeah. in each other's eyes it could be working without that but you know here we are on zoom and there's a wisdom to what's emerging in this conversation and the people listening to us will hear that if we're true to it and so i think the same is true in coaching and i notice as a coach and as a coachee there are times when i'm just not listening man i'm just you know uh i'm pushing my agenda but when i genuinely listen everything everything's possible it's a miraculous space really yeah i really agree with that i've been returning recently to my freudian psychotherapeutic roots in specifically with regard to that space um because you know as you know freudian therapists in an extreme way never fill that space that space is there the minute someone walks into the consulting room and the therapist sits and waits because they wait for the patient the client the coachee whatever we want to call them they wait for whatever bubbles to the surface for them to just come in and fill that space and and whatever bubbles to the surface the freudian therapist believes always has relevance maybe not apparent but i notice quite often the random things that we say at the very beginning sometimes things that seem to just come out you know the things that we talked about before before we started recording sometimes by the end of the hour or two really have relevance 
and connection. And I've been absolutely recently honoring that um, emergent nature of coaching conversations. It is, there's something very beautiful about it, as you've said. Yes, and I think there is also um, a time. So the one, you know, the thing that us humans do, which doesn't serve us necessarily, is we get caught in sort of thought storm. Um, like a, it's like a scratch in the record. Um, and we just go round and round. Um, and sometimes we need to be told you're, you know, you're overthinking. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we know that time as well, right? We know that, you know, and in fact, I said to you early, earlier in our conversation, and I'll say it now, I'm in a, a thought storm about something that I can tell is a thought storm because I know that logic will not penetrate this thought storm. I'm not actually listening. I'm just going round and round. And so um, I caught myself, but if you were coaching me earlier, I would, I would have welcomed you going, I think you're going round and round in circles here. Yeah. Um, so, but, but again, that comes out of the space in you to call yeah. that. And so, yeah. you know, so there's always that space question. And I think for me as a, as a coach, my journey has been and continues to be the unlearning of what I think I know. Because when somebody comes to me, particularly now that I've got this sort of modicum of fame, <laughs> um, people, people want, quote, advice from me. And of course, that's not, helpful or relevant at all. I don't have any. But every now and then I delude myself into believing that I have something helpful to add. And you know, occasionally I do obviously, but it comes from a very different space than the giant I important and I want to tell you what I know about stuff. And so the space that emerges that allows us to know when to when to contribute content. Yeah. Um it, it, it all, it's always a slowing down. And, you know, my favorite object is uh, this snow globe that I keep on my desk. I do. Yeah. Because it's the best metaphor that I've got for nothing useful comes from churned up thinking. Nothing ever. It needs to settle before fresh thought can come. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, so for the benefit of our listeners, um, yeah, the millions of them, <laughs> not, but anyway, for the benefit of our loyal, lovely listeners, um, let's hear a bit about, you know, you, I have a sense of how you coach, but who do you coach? What does your coaching practice look like? What's the experience of being coached by you? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a kind of a newbie coach, right? So I've got, um, I've got uh, a very small little group of people that I coach. Um, and I've got uh, a, a group of them in the sustainability environmental space. 
because of course that's the space that I hang out in. Um, and so that's joyful to me. I have, uh, I have a couple of business owners, um, small business owners, and that's joyful to me in a different way. Um, I, I also consult and I distinguish consulting from coaching. So, um, you know, there are times when somebody, you know, for example, I'm working with somebody right now who watched my TED talk, contacted me and then said, my senior management needs to know about this and I need your help in um, the next level of transformation. And so uh, that may turn into coaching for some individuals, but that's a very specific, it's a sort of speaking engagement with some okay. consulting. Um, but I, I'm getting more and more distinct on, on those two things. At the beginning, yeah. they used to blur more, but now they don't. Yeah. I used to like the consulting more because I felt more important. Yeah. Um, but I was actually coaching somebody a couple of weeks back and I had this huge awareness that I had made up the idea that a one-on-one -on -one conversation was somehow less important than you know me and a thousand people and that's just made up and in fact the joy that i have from one-on-one -on -one conversation is now uh growing and growing because actually i have no clue what's going to come out so there are kind of a voyage of discovery because i see myself as a sort of um see myself as a tour guide so if you were this is my best metaphor. So if you and I were going on a, you know, a trip to I don't know, Regent's Park and I said to you, Kim, I'm going to take you on a tour of Regent's Park. You, you know, there would be some things in that park that I've seen that I know that I understand that I've researched and so on. But then you'd say, look at those ducks over there. And I go, cool, let's look at the, let's go over there. And so us walking together in Regent's Park with me as some, you know, having done some research and having some understanding does not stop you from exploring, experimenting and seeing things that I haven't seen and then inviting me into that space with you. And so, you know, I've had some clients that I don't work with anymore because they don't like that so much. They want mm -hmm. me to kind of tell them stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, that's cool. It's just not who I am or where I am, right? Yeah. I love those two things that you've said. First of all, the thought that popped into your head that you'd somehow kind of decided that speaking to a thousand people was more important, meaningful, valuable than talking to one person. And then the tour guide analogy, which is beautiful and reminds me of um, something Irvin Yalon says, who's an existential psychotherapist and a writer. I love his work. And he, he calls himself a fellow traveler. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. On their journey. Yeah. And one of the things that I think for me is, um, a lot of people obviously are reaching out to me around how to lead in these troubled times. Um, and we, 
we kind of come back to this place over and over, which is the impetus that people have to do things alone or the view that they have to do it alone and their lack of exploring of the resources around them, the people in their company, the people in their team, the people who are in other, um, you know, companies next to them. And, um, when, and when I dig further into that, we come back to the same place in a way that I started talking about earlier, which is um, our ability to genuinely be impacted what, by what other people say and how other people are is a profoundly human skill. And it's what we do. It's who we are. It's at core, that's who we are. We're social creatures who are impacted by each other. Somehow in business, we've made up a story that that's not how it is and that we're separate and that this little box of this department or this company or this country or this industry are separate and they're not. And just reminding ourselves that actually connecting is going back to who we really are. It's not some sort of new skill. It's not some sort of, you know, bizarre new idea. And in fact, one of the things I've loved about COVID is, you know, at the beginning of all of this, you would see people on their Zoom calls with, you know, wearing their work gear and, um, you know, locked in some little room. And as the weeks and months have gone on, people have, you know, started, you know, doing Zoom calls in their pajamas with their kids and their dogs crawling all over them. Everyone's gone, thank goodness for that. Now I can see that you're an interconnected human with your world around you. Yeah. 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 That was a, I don't know if you saw it. I don't, I think it was in the UK, but there was a Sky News reporter, a, a woman on TV last week trying to read the news and her little kids came in and kept going, mom, 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 mom. And she ended up saying, yes, you can have two biscuits, go away. And, and I loved that they just ran that. You know, that's where we've moved to now. It's Indeed. So it's a silver lining in this time, certainly. It is, and I hope that, um, that we don't go back to the bad old days. And I think, um, I mean, I, 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 that, you know, the humanity, I mean, you tell me about her and you have a new sense of connection with that woman that you didn't have the day before, right? Yeah. And so let's go with that. And I think, you know, one of the things, obviously I'm, I'm sitting in New York right now and um, the question of diversity and inclusion is a huge one right now. And one of the things that I love about Zoom is, uh, or any of these um, tools, but Zoom happens to be a pretty good one because it has this really good uh, raise hand mechanism. And so we can include people in a way that we couldn't before where they had to kind of, you know, muscle around in a room and, you know, kind of, there were all sorts of other cues. So there's an opportunity for us to be even more inclusive and even more interdependent and collaborative than we ever were before. And I'm hoping that that, um, and that even the most important boss boss in inverted commas is the same size little box on the screen i love that too as the there most is, junior person you know yeah there is no hierarchy on that screen is there so so lorna uh, what i what, what i kind of 
guess I need to understand is you have your TED Talk. It's called a Guide to Collaborative Leadership. And you're discussing that hero leaders and then interdependent leaders and, you know, how, how leaders move to being the person that they are when they go home and they put their tracky bottoms on to, you know, bring that person to work. Um, and I understand you do consulting on that and then you do coaching. How do you begin to work with an organization that wants to move more towards a collaborative style of leadership? What would be the you know, process that you would use? So I go, uh, I, I wait for the space inside me. I don't have like a process. I have, um, I have a few things that I look for. Okay. Um, the first is that um, the the way for this kind of change to happen is exactly the opposite of how classic organizations work. So classic organizations start at the top and they force, deploy, whatever you want to do, whatever word you want to use, the idea down the organization. And then apparently once it gets down the organization, it goes out into the world. That's not how it works how it really works is it comes from the outside through the bottom and up to the top. So it, what I see all the time with leaders, honestly, Kim, this is just amazing, or with businesses, I frequently get a CEO who's kind of awake. The CEO's got to the top of the ladder, gone, hey, I, I can see another way. I can see the future. I can see the horizon and I want to make a change. The people at the bottom of the organization who are young and less powerful go, good grief. Why would I be working for an organization that doesn't have some sort of sense of purpose, perspective, whatever? And they're pushing and agitating and driving change. Just below the CEO is a level that I call permafrost. Mm -hmm. So these are the ones that are saying, Man, I've worked my whole life to get to this place. I'm not at the top, but I'm close to the top. And I don't want those rules to change. So the people who normally come to me are the ones at the very top or the ones, you know, kind of midway down, who've yeah. often been charged by the CEO to change the company. Yes. It's kind of fun, you know. Um, and the advice, the advice that I give them from my own experience and from all of the people that I work with is a couple of things. First of all, encourage uh, uh, inspire, include the most junior people in your organization. They are your energy. They are your passionate people. And they are the people that you will lose if you don't put your organization on a good, on a good path. And yeah. what's amazing to me is how easy it is to do. You can do a webinar. I mean, when I was at Danone, we launched a manifesto to the whole company. And then we opened a website. We allowed people to contribute and that was 100,000 people. And about you know, 5,000 people contributed. And a year later, we launched a V2 of that manifesto, which was genuinely a people's manifesto. And then we found a way for, um, for those people to organize. We use Facebook at work, but there are other ways that you can do this to allow people to kind of organize amongst themselves to keep the momentum going. So first thing is your young people are your kind of most powerful, useful, and hot um, things. So, you know, if you use the permafrost method, they're gonna, they're gonna bubble from the bottom up. 
But the second key group of collaborators is the people outside you. Um, the people upstream from you, so suppliers, anybody who is a supplier of yours, if they're a manufacturer or if any kind of business, you've got people upstream from you who give you goods and services. And you've got customers, people downstream from you to whom you sell your goods and services. Once those people are engaged in the journey with you, investors, governments, mm -hmm anything becomes possible. And what's interesting is if, if I take, for example, uh, when I turned our North American business into a B corporation, which is a, which is a certified business as a force for good, we created an advisory committee to help us on the journey. And we put the chairperson of that advisory committee to be the CEO of Patagonia. And Patagonia is you know, globally known as probably one of the most sort of ethical companies in the world. I can tell you, Kim, that every time I made a decision about whether we use recyclable this or organic that, the thought that I was going to have a meeting with the head of Patagonia to sort of have her look at what I was doing really focused my mind. Yeah. So the more transparency you can have in your journey, the better. Because again, organizations are designed to be opaque and secretive. Yeah. And sort it all out themselves and then announce it to everybody else. Yeah. It's not, way, it's not the way real life works. Everybody can see what we're doing anyway. So the more that you can engage people outside of you, the better. And, and every time I have, you know, work with people, I experiment with like, what's the most, who are the most unlikely co-conspirators? And oftentimes in private, in, in, in private businesses or in, um, you know, in, in normal for-profit businesses, people say, oh, the government, can't get involved with the government. I can tell you, if we're, if we're going to make systemic change, making relationship connections change with the government is going to be critical. Local government, you know, regional government, federal government. So um, my, my sort of overall theme is not from the top down and out, but from the outside and the bottom up. Yeah. And as transparent and as public as you can possibly be because there's something about the vulnerability of talking about what you're trying to do that invites other people into the process and makes it a much more broadly based process. Yeah. What's your, what's your sense <laughs> it's a massive question. You don't know every organization in the world, but what's your sense about the sort of shifting landscape, the appetite that exists for, for change of this kind? I think there are two groups of people and I think, um, and I think it's sort of becoming geographically uh, clumpy. <laughs> okay. There are some parts of the world and some people and some companies who've come to the conclusion that the circumstances in which we find ourselves, combination of climate change, uh, income inequality, COVID, threat of nuclear war, overuse of resources, what, however you want to do it, means that we are inevitably interconnected and so let us stop messing about and let's work out how to do that. 
Mm. And those people are aligning themselves with things like the sustainable development goals. They are aligning themselves with B Corp and they are personally working on uh, sort of breaking down barriers. I was talking to somebody from the Scottish government who told me how much uh, things have changed through COVID and how much they'd learned from what the third sector, they call it in Scotland, was doing and how they were changing the way they were doing things as a result. So there's a sort of an inevitability for many people. There's another group of people who have come to exactly the opposite conclusion, that this situation is so terrifying and overwhelming and uh, uncertain and therefore I better just protect myself and they're actually digging their heels in mm. building up their little piles of cash building walls you know in some cases buying guns and kind of hunkering down and I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about that because I do see that happening in, in, in conversations at a personal level and at a professional level um, and so I don't spend too much time thinking about that because it's too high a level of sort of, um, you know, altitude for me. It's kind of yeah. above my pay grade. <laughs> um, I, I, I look for people who are in the first group yeah. and see how I can help them to gain momentum. And I'm seeing some really good things happening. I mean, if you look at you know, my old company, Danone, has just made the public agreement to become a public benefit corporation. Uh, the government in France is very active in this space. There are a lot of corporations in France working uh, strongly to collaborate. Um, so this is kind of the place where I like to hang out. Yeah, it's really exciting listening to you. It's a space I'd like to hang out to, and, I, and you have a sense of mission about you that comes from absolutely the right place you have a sense of mission that uh i think will um inspire others so so like say someone with a little company like me you know not a big corporation just a little company with a a good heart and uh trying to do good in the world but doing that at a very kind of, you know, personal one-to-one -one level. So coaching in itself does good and we do some bits of pro bono work. But what are some simple steps that we could take to start to move towards um, working more interdependently with others and making the world a better place in more than an emotional sense? Um, so I will start by, um, by talking about exactly the emotional sense, which is that my view is that your point of action is where your heart breaks. So there are lots of things in the world that happen that are horrible, but they don't really touch us. And then there is a thing and everybody listening has a thing. Sure. And it could be hungry children. It could be, um, in, it, it could be, uh, you know, battered, battered women. It could be, in my case, rhinos. Yeah, I knew you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no, there's no hierarchy in these things. You pick the one that moves you, that touches you, that breaks your heart. 
Yeah. Because it's in the breaking of the heart that, you know, as Leonard Cohen said, or whatever the light gets in, but it's the thing that will fuel your movement and it will give you direction. So once you decide what that is, so for example, I have a client um, who is deeply passionate about mental health services for the underserved. And so um, she is doing a combination of giving money to that area. So that's in a donation sense, but she's also actively advocating against some of the rules around how insurance pays for mental health services for the underserved. Yeah. So she's got a committee of a whole group of people who are desperately trying to work together to make something happen. Um, she also personally has a practice in which she gives pro, no, pro bono services to some people. And obviously that's offset by people who pay more money. So she has kind of three different access points, mm -hmm. but they all come to the same place of mental health services for the underserved yeah. because that's where her heart breaks. Um, in my case, uh, my heart breaks at, at, at Rhinos, but it also breaks at Black Lives Matter. And because I'm so white South African, I didn't do enough in those days. And now I'm effectively doing my own reparations. And so I give money to Rhinos. I also have a, um, a group of people in a, I've co-created a Rhino charity. Um, as I said, I would in my TED talk. And I work hard to bring as much love and interconnection to that group of people as I can so that we can act in Africa with love rather than with force. Um, and at the same time, I'm doing my own education and donating money to Black Lives Matter in the United States because that's where I happen to work right now. Um, and I do think that inclusion and diversity are the solutions to many of the challenges in this, in this deeply sad and broken country. And this is a deeply sad and broken country, the one that I happen to live in right now. Um, and, and I had to come to my own moment for that because a couple of months back, I was like, oh, well, I don't, I'm not even a citizen. I can't even vote. This isn't my fight. Actually, it is. I'm here. And so I think once we find that place of direction, the actual mechanisms for action are, they'll, they'll follow. They'll become obvious to you, whether it's in, in money or in time. And I think the question of who you collaborate with is a very important one. Um, and so speaking about it invites mm -hmm. people in. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think is very interesting about Black Lives Matter is that, that they've been on a very excellent campaign to have uncomfortable conversations with people who may disagree with you. And I had an extremely uncomfortable conversation with my financial advisor last week who disagrees with me. And that's cool. I learned a lot and I, you know, I stumbled a bit, but I did my best. Uh, on this podcast, I'm expressly saying what I believe in. And I'm sure there will be people on this podcast who don't agree with me. And that's part of the game yeah. that I want people to disagree with me. And I want to find the people who agree with me. There may also be people who reach out to me after this podcast and say, I'm with you. And that step of speaking about what you care about, which by the way, also allows you to speak about the fact that you choose not to be involved in certain things. I mean, there's some heartbreaking things that we, I'm just not touching because yeah. that's not, that's not where my heart's breaking. Yeah. So that's what I think. And I think from a company point of view, if you look at again, Patagonia as an extreme, they do all of it. They give away a percentage of their profits to activists. 
they are members of the B Corp movement and therefore are part of that movement and support other people in it. But they also have personally sued the president of the United States for taking away public lands. Um, so I don't think it's about, you don't have to choose one. You can do a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 That's, I'm going to make a sort of slightly crass connection with what you've said with such heartfelt passion, but um, it's resonating with me. It's awakening a realization in me um, that many coaches come to me and say, oh, I need to go and find a niche. What, you know, do you think this would be a good niche? Shall I do this as my coaching niche? And I always say, no, it will find you wait for the niche to find you it's got to be something that fits with your life story with something that's in your heart otherwise it's inauthentic and whilst that's about you know a kind of commercial decision it's about being led by your heart and your values and what matters to you it's beautiful advice and it um it's beautiful advice and it also uh, allows you to kind of find your way. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, is a grandmother and she sent me a video of her little her grandchild, you know, stumbling around walking and trying to walk. And that's how this journey is. You know, we see a cookie on the shelf. We think maybe we start walking towards it and then we fall over and then we realize we didn't really want that cookie after all anyway. And so then we get up and we stumble in another direction and that's the human journey. I mean, I think we assume that we're supposed to have it all sorted out. There we go. That's not how it works. It's a much gentler journey than that. And it is a gentle journey that starts with and ends with you. Yeah. And we know this to be true, but we sometimes forget. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking how, what a gift this podcast will be for those people. You know, the people who listen to this are mostly coaches. So those people who are embarking on a building a coaching business and instead of embarking on building a coaching business led exclusively by how many clients can I get? How many CEOs can I coach? How much money do I need to uh, make? How famous will I be? What books will I write? Imagine starting your coaching business with all these, with this sense of mission and this sense of contribution to the world uh, so that in 20 years time, they don't get to a point like those leaders you've spoken about where they go, actually, this wasn't the company I wanted to build. Indeed. And, and in fact, I would, I would offer a metaphor, a different metaphor, which is how about growing a coaching garden um, rather than building a coaching business? Because even the metaphors make all the difference. So plant yeah. some seeds and see what grows. And then in 20 years time, you'll have a tree. So there's something, you know, you're absolutely right that it's organic. And sometimes just the language helps us, right? Building a business sounds so Bob the Builder. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, and, it, and you almost immediately see, like, I, when I say building a business, I kind of see Canary Wharf in my mind's eye, you know, all those big old shiny mirrored buildings, and already you're off on the wrong track. Unless that's the track you want to be on, of course, but... Exactly. Lorna, we, we probably need to stop talking, actually. Because um, people seem to have a sort of tolerance limit for podcasts. And I think we're about there. I cannot thank you enough for being your wonderful, lovely, real, passionate, feisty, thoughtful self. It's been wonderful to see you again. It's been a joy. I really appreciate it, Kim. Thank you. <laughs>